This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. My gosh, you boys already know. I'm not letting that Ramsey boy come over and play until you clean up your rooms. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I heard government folks talking about leaks. So to think locally, I'm checking all the windows and doors, and it turns out we have multiple leakers in this house. Big problem. Cold air sneaking in everywhere. Today, here to help us make life warmer for lots more people, we welcome from the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, Scott Materer. Plus, from Afford Anything, it's Paula Pant. And from this podcast, it's OG. And that's not all. In today's Friday FinTech segment, how do you crack open access to investments usually reserved for the 1%? Here to explain what they do, we welcome from Round, Saul Cohen. Of course, we'll still answer a magnify money call for help and, you got it, save time for my incredible trivia. And now, the guy wondering if we can get 1% of these leaks plugged, Joe Saul Sihai. It is amazing how cold it is, and I have a long sleeve shirt on, and I've got my fuzzy slippers, and I'm still freezing. But we're going to warm it up for everybody today, because we got a great show. First of all, sitting at the card table across from me, it's my good friend, OG. What's up, man? We're back for another Friday. Yeah, it seems like I haven't talked to you in forever, so I'm really excited. I've been missing you so much. Yeah, I can tell. Yes, absolutely. And from the desert... It is our good friend, who I'm sure is freezing in the desert, Paula Pant. It is freezing in the desert. I mean, it gets, that's the thing about deserts. They are atmospheres of extremes. So So it's incredibly hot in the summer, but it gets colder than you would expect in the winter. Yeah, meaning? Well, 30s. Yeah, I feel horrible. windy 30s. Oh, windy. Windy Oh, windy. Yes. Windy, yes. It's, It's the wind that gets you. It is the wind that gets you. It's the wind. It's the, it's that dry desert wind. Yeah. It totally makes it horrible. I feel so bad for Paula. And a guy who also is somewhere warm. What the hell's up with this? It's like warm for everybody except here in the basement. Coming to us from San Antonio on my dad's shortwave. It's a guy who we should have had on way before now. I have no idea why it took us so long. From the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, it's our good friend Scott Mater. How are you, buddy? Hey, Joe. Yeah, it's a uh, balmy 61 oh, degrees here, so up. we're freezing. I've got a sweater on, oh. um, and uh, you know, it's a typical South Texas winter, so oh. it's about 
about 35 this morning and about 65 by this afternoon. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. How do you do it? How do you manage? Yeah. You know, you, you turn on the heater in the morning and the air conditioner in the afternoon. It's great. <laughs> that's, it's, oh, that's it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cry me a river, pal. But tell everybody about, about your podcast, because I absolutely love what you do, as you know. Um, so tell us about Inspired Stewardship. Yeah, you've actually been one of the guests. I do some special episodes that I call Saturday Night Specials, where I invite on experts and talk to them. Uh, and then I also do solo episodes throughout the week. So I've been doing it. Uh, January 8th will be my, or it has been my my two-year anniversary. So five days a week, uh, putting out a short-form uh, podcast uh, touching on areas of time, talent, and treasures, thus the name Inspired Stewardship. And I try to help people in those three areas. That's what I do uh, around my coaching business. And so that's that's what the podcast is about. It is really fun. It's super inspiring and uh, just a great time. I'm glad. I'm glad we finally got you here, man. It's about time. Well, now that I'm out of the witness relocation program, it's a little easier to get me on things. So you know how that is. <laughs> and Paul, I don't know if you know this. He said they have experts on from time to time and I made the cut. Whoa. I know, right? I I mean, well, he might have meant we have experts and also Joe. And all there probably. Well well, actually Joe was coming on Separate to talk statement. about board games. So That's you know, right. <laughs> we, we stuck with his area of expertise. We did. We <laughs> talked about board games, which is something I if I'm an expert at anything, that's that's probably the one area. By the way, another around is a great core competence. (laughs) Another area, another area that uh, we're not an expert in is uh, sending emails consistently. But when we do, they're on the stacker. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash stacker. If you want the latest on what's going on in the basement in the new decade here in the roaring 20s, we're going to be doing some traveling, OG and I, around the country. And we hope to meet many of you. We also uh, have lots of financial planning tips. In fact, lately, people. People be getting stackers with surprising regularity, OG. I don't know what that's about. We we probably are going to have to stop that before people think we're actually actually going to keep this moving. Surprising regularity is never mind. <laughs> are you saying that's an old guy term? Was that was what I, where I was going to go with it? Yes, yes. We we're going to leave that alone. But we got a great show today. We're going to talk about charitable giving, and uh, we've got a great piece. So let's uh, get this party started. And to kick off today's episode, you know, the past few shows, when we've had roundtable discussions, we have had people read them like it's an audiobook. Uh, and usually, though, it's a third party. But today, we have this piece from Marriage, Kids, and Money, our friend Andy Hill. Uh, from Marriage, Kids, and Money, wrote this piece, and we asked Andy to narrate it. So here with the piece we're going to talk about today, my friend Andy Hill. Charitable giving can feel difficult or even impossible when we're in debt and barely scraping by. But when we've lifted ourselves up to a position of financial strength and confidence, giving back feels like the right thing to do. Sharing the wealth with our neighbors in need is a privilege and an honor. There are so many of our neighbors who need our help. Just in our country alone, over 400,000 American children are in foster care. 40 million people struggle with hunger in the United States. 550,000 Americans experience homelessness on a typical night. 
Globally, the issues are even larger. 663 million people live without access to clean water. 130 million girls are not in school due to threats of poverty, war, and gender discrimination globally. 10% of the world's population lives on $1.90 per day. When you hear statistics like that, it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like, well, how can I make a difference? But I believe we can tackle these huge challenges the same way we tackled our huge financial challenges, one step at a time. Here are seven strategies to help make charitable giving a part of your family life starting today. Number one, ladder up your giving. You may not be giving much today, but that doesn't mean you can't change that. Set a goal to increase your giving by 1% or 2% and then pick a realistic time frame to make it happen. My family did this over the past few years and it's been a really exciting adventure of discovering what's most important to us. In 2017, we realized we were only giving 1% of our income. Now, there was nothing wrong with that. It was just, we felt like we could give more. We had paid off our mortgage and we had paid off all of our debt and it felt like this was something we were supposed to do. We set a goal to give 3% the following year in 2018 and we did it. This year, we laddered up to 5%. So we didn't do this overnight. It took a two-year period of time. And now it doesn't feel like such a jolt to our budget. It feels right. So pick a time frame and pick a percentage and ladder up your giving. Number two, encourage giving with your kids. Giving becomes a lot more fun and impactful when you get the whole family involved. Try setting a tradition where you give with your kids. This can be with your money and their money too. A couple of years ago, I started a tradition with my kids called the Big Give. This is an opportunity for our family to give together. So here's how it goes. Step one, we get milkshakes (laughs) because everything is better with milkshakes, my friends. Step two, we empty out each of our kids' give jars. This is the glass jar where our kids have been saving 10% of their money each week from their chore and reward program for the past 12 weeks. Step three, we count how much money they have in each jar. Step four, we watch three videos from charity websites so the kids can decide who they want to give their money to. Lately, Zoe's been a fan of the World Wildlife Fund, and Calvin has been giving a lot of his money to the homeless folks in Detroit. Step five, we match the kids' donations. That way we're doubling the impact. Step six, is that we make the donation on the website and we write a special note to the organization about who is making the donation. And step seven, talk to your kids about the impact they're having on these organizations and the world. Let them know you are proud of them because they're making a huge difference in making the world a better place to live. So those are the seven steps that we do to do our big give. We rinse and repeat the same process every quarter, And we're going to try to do that for the rest of their childhood. And maybe, just maybe, they will do the same with their kids. Okay, number three, make giving automatic. One of my favorite sections in David Bach's book, The Automatic Millionaire, 
uh, is in chapter 8. He talks about becoming an automatic giver. He encourages readers to sign up for an automatic monthly contribution to their favorite church or charity or nonprofit. This way, you can't forget to donate. If you do this at the beginning of the year and plan for it each month, just like investing, your giving will continue to grow. And in no time, you'll become a generous giver. Number four, find charities that move you. If giving away your money feels like pulling teeth, then maybe it's time for you to look for another charity or a different cause. Give your money to an organization that lifts up your heart and makes you feel like your money is going to just make the world a better place. Find organizations that align with your values and just create a fire in your belly. The majority of my giving now goes to organizations who are focused on giving kids a better shot at life. So ask yourself, what do you care about the most? What inspires you? What wrong do you want to make right in your community or your country? I think these are some of the most important questions we can ask ourselves. All right, number five, give big year-end gifts. Instead of giving $100 per month to your favorite charity, consider giving a one-time $1,200 donation. How cool would that be to write that check, right? In the past, we've done the automatic giving, and it's allowed us to stay consistent and support our favorite charities that the Hilt family cares about. This year, we're going for the big donation. I'm not sure if it's going to be more fun or it's going to be different. I, I just think the experimentation is fun. And I think testing it out and figuring out what works best for us will, will be an adventure. So that's what we're going to try this year. Number six, donor advised funds. If you are looking for a tax efficient way to give back, consider donor advised funds. According to Fidelity, a donor advised fund is like an investment account, but for charitable giving. So your contributions or donations can grow like an investment account, allowing you to give now or in the future. This can be a way for you and your family to have some big impact. Number seven, random acts of kindness. Have you ever heard of those people who pay for someone's entire bill at the grocery store or the people who leave a $100 tip for their waitress on their $10 lunch bill? Those type of people, man, are my heroes. Those stories are so cool. I want to be a hero like that. And I want you to join me. So this month, I'm joining a group of other crazy personal finance YouTubers who are looking to make an impact in their community through random acts of kindness. My family's contribution will be taking part in another Big Tip Tuesday like we did last year. We had a lot of fun with this and we want to do it again. My wife and I will both be taking a $100 bill and giving it randomly to someone who's working in the service industry. They are working hard. These individuals who are working in the service industry are working hard to provide for their families or pay off debt or just simply to make ends meet. They might be working at your favorite fast food place or your lunch spot or driving you in an Uber or cutting your hair but we're hoping to bring them a smile this year with a big tip. And maybe that kindness will have a ripple effect that will make others smile as well. And then it'll continue on from there. I hope these seven ideas 
help you to make charitable giving a part of your family's life. Big thanks to Andy. Let's go through this because I found this obviously incredibly interesting, making charitable giving a family tradition. And I want to walk through this first idea. And Scott, let's start with you. The first thing Andy talked about was this idea of laddering up your giving. I love this idea of it doesn't have to be a lot to start off with. You can start small and just get bigger over time. Yeah. And that's actually a great technique to use for a lot of things when you're building you're building your muscles around something, building your habits around something, whether it's physical fitness, whether it's giving, whether it's investing, is this idea of just slice off a little bit of the the pie, almost so little that you won't even miss it. And then just slowly over time, let it creep up and increase, you know, as, as maybe as you get a raise, you increase it, or you do a certain percentage every month or every year or whatever, depending what it is. That's actually something my wife and I did when we started giving. We sliced off about 2%. And then every about four months, we just increased the giving. And by the end of the year, you know, we were writing some fairly big checks and weren't even missing it. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely it does. And OG, you found that. I mean, Scott said you can do this with your whole life. You do this with clients, right? Sure. It works just like with anything. You know, we talk about doing it for from a saving standpoint or investing standpoint. You know, once you get past a certain amount of, of income, it doesn't much matter uh, how much money you make beyond that because, you know, your life's just going to expand into whatever money you allow it. So just like you might take a portion of a bonus or a portion of a pay raise and direct it toward additional savings, why not do the same thing from a charitable standpoint? Something else I like here, Paula, is that one of the reasons when I was a financial planner, people said they didn't give is that they felt like they hadn't done enough research. But if you start small with one or 2%, you can give a little now, do your research along the way and get your feet wet. Absolutely. And the other thing, and we heard Andy say this later in the piece, is that you can also contribute to a donor advised fund. So if you want to commit to making a charitable contribution, but you haven't yet decided which charity should receive uh, the benefit of that money, you can make a contribution to a donor advised fund. And, and that way you've committed that money to charity. And then you have time on your side to be able to do research. Um, if it's a local charity, you can even go there, volunteer a little bit so that you can see in person how it runs. You know, you can feel comfortable with whatever beneficiary you're choosing. We'll, we'll talk more about donor advised funds later on because I want to get a little bit into the nitty gritty of how those work. But on his second point, encourage your kids to give. Oh, gee, probably my favorite point in the whole piece is to start with a milkshake and ice cream because everything's better with milkshakes and ice cream. Unless your kid has a peanut allergy. Then, damn, no kid, milkshakes and ice cream for you. Kids, yes. So then you make them watch while the rest of you have milkshakes and ice cream. Yeah. Let me tell you how charitable giving works. <laughs> See how I'm having this milkshake and ice cream and you're not getting any? Wouldn't that feel bad? There's people who don't get to have milkshakes and ice cream. <laughs> that's Like you, that's young, young man. All right. Well, let's go on to the second piece here, though. He says to empty out their kids' uh, give jars. Scott, do you see people that have give jars all the time or often? I like that idea. We actually started my son with, again, a lot of the things that Andy's talking about, I, I'm actually reading it going, yeah, we did that. Yeah, we did that. You know, we started my son out with basically three glass jars. One was for money that he could spend. One was for money that he was saving. And and eventually we put that in the bank. But, you know, at the beginning it was visual and it was sitting on his desk. And then one was the money that he gave. And the neat thing, especially for young kids, is making it visual like that, making it tangible where they can see the money in a jar 
and see it building up. You know, it's right there in front of them. It just makes it real. And then they actually get to pick what they want to give to. And Andy just talked about that as we go on. And you get to tie it to what they think is important. So they see it. Because let's face it, the abstract of money in a bank, especially to a four-year-old, is pretty abstract you know they don't they don't get that i mean i most 40 year olds don't get it either right. but, I, say, I don't get it either yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> nobody's just sitting there we should be spending that cash you see that 401k we gotta we gotta read well, that I, thing. I know people that actually think that when they deposit the money in the bank that people take it in the back room and like there's piles of money in the back room of you know there's my money and it's sitting there with my name on it and a rubber band around it and it's like nope that's not how that works actually <laughs> no it's more like social security none of that money's really there <laughs> exactly. Go go back. So wait, there's not big piles of money in the back of the bank? <laughs> Look, no. about, wait a minute. In fact, it's funny, Paula, you'll appreciate this because you were just talking about donor advised funds and there's some tax advantages to doing those. One mm-hmm. of my clients, when I was a financial planner, he would give kids their allowance and the 10% that he would take off as the give fund, right? Mm-hmm. He also called that the tax man. So- so I, nice I, taxes. Yeah, I don't know if this is good or if this would be good or bad. Ten percent goes to taxes. That is not your cash. It goes to somebody else, and then when they build that up, they then give it to a charity. Mm. One of my friends actually has the kid give to charity and takes money off the top as taxes. Now they quote unquote have increased the kid's commission so that they're paying them a little <laughs> bit more, but so that they feel the bite of hey, this is what the real world is like. You I got to pay the government. I thought when you started that sentence, you said that they quote unquote increase the tax rate. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do that too, but that's a whole that's that, you know. It's like hey, you know, dad needs another milkshake, so uh, taxes are forty percent this week. Right. <laughs> like, like I, you won the lottery. I like this idea, OG, of because I wondered how the kids pick the charity. But really, Andy and his spouse are picking the charities and they, they let them watch three videos and choose from a short list. That seems to me to be a nice way to do this. Yeah. You can't just say, where do you want your money to go? Because my kids would pick like, is there a charitable giving where I get Xbox gift cards? Right. You know, <laughs> how many cookies do I get out of this deal? But if you can narrow it down to something that they're interested in, you know, use some activities that they're already involved with and kind of dovetail onto those. For example, a lot of sporting events or kids sporting activities, they'll have like something that ties with a charitable organization. We've got something at our kids' school that they do during the football season that benefits kids who are sick at the hospital because a kid that went to the school was at that hospital. So it kind of ties it all together. They can kind of see, oh, this is the same thing as like the Layla thing that we do. You know, it just gives them a little bit more nitty gritty of it, I think. But yeah, you got to kind of whittle it down for him a little bit. I want to skip ahead just a little bit to point number three, where he talked about making giving automatic. And this is something that I don't do. Paula, do you do that? I do not make it automatic. What I did was at the end of the year. So at, at the end of 2019, I sat down, looked at my current financial snapshot and then decided how much I was going to put into my donor advised fund. Gotcha. So uh, does anybody make it automatic? Yeah, my ours is. Yeah, the stuff that we do for church and stuff like that is just automatically to the, um, you know, MX card or whatever. And um, yeah. I found that to be a lot easier, actually. I do. I like the idea of committing to it. I'm going to give X. My brain works, I think, more like Paula's, where I'm like, we'll see what's left. <laughs> well, that's the downside. Yes. Is, that, is that if you do it that way, it's just like savings, right? It's just like any other savings goal or something like that. If you're not like super ultra disciplined, 
it'll just be gone at the end of the month or at the end of the period. I will say to the strategy of doing it at the at the end of the year, if you have a donor advised fund, you might decide not to go too far deep into the weeds, but you might decide to donate appreciated assets that have capital gains into that fund rather than cash. And so if that's the case, then assuming that you have assets in a taxable brokerage account, you might want to wait until the end of the year so that you can see what type of growth you've had and then pick the assets that have had the greatest capital gains and donate that in. Well, let's actually go into that then a little bit since you're already in the weeds. I, I don't want to get out of the weeds and then back in and because we keep going back to donor advice funds. So, OG, Paul is explaining this thing called a donor advice fund. Can you tell us a little more about how that works? Uh, sure. They've been around a while, but they're gaining popularity because of the ease of operations, I think. Um, now, most of the big companies, Fidelity, Schwab, are probably the biggest two, although I would venture to say that there's countless other places that you can have them as well. Think of it this way. It's just like putting your uh, donation to your charity in an investment account. And like you said, maybe you haven't decided what you want to do with the money, but you want a tax deduction now, or you know that you want to give some money. How we use it in our family is we know that there's some needs that organizations have today. And if you ever ask an organization, hey, would you rather have money today or a whole bunch of money later? They'll go, we'll just take it now, thanks. And so you kind of have to manage it yourself a little bit. And so the way that we think about it is we're going to have some of our charitable contributions this year for operating expenses and whatever the needs are of the organization that we support now. But then we're also going to take some of our contribution or some of our donation and we're going to set it aside for sometime later. And that sometime later might be 40 years from now. But you get that power of compounding because you can invest it how you choose within reason. And then from an operation standpoint, it works very similarly that at whatever period or interval that you want, you send a note over to Fidelity or Schwab or whatever and say, hey, I want you to send a check to, you know, whatever the charity is. They just vet it real quick and make sure that it's a legit place and send it out. So pretty simple. Much, much cheaper, though, Paula, than setting up a trust or setting up a charitable trust. Yeah, exactly. If you try to set up a charitable trust or a private non-operating foundation, both of those are much more complex. So a donor advised fund is, it's simple. It's pretty simple to do, to open. Do you change the beneficiary then from time to time or keep it the same? On the donor advised fund? Yeah. I have not decided where that money is going to go. That's another, that's a question mark. Well, I think, oh, gee, we need to become a 501c3 right now. <laughs> Way ahead of you, RDM. <laughs> yes, because charity begins on iTunes <laughs> gift cards for your kids. That's right. mm-hmm. <laughs> no, sorry, Xbox. Yep, Xbox right. gift cards. Yeah, that's it. I, Xbox. Remember how Paula we were talking about Andy Hill not getting into podcasting because there's no money here. <laughs> there you go. Number seven on here. Well, and actually, let's back up a little bit because I want to back up to his fourth point, which is find charities that move you. I got to tell you guys, I had a problem, Scott. I When I first started getting involved with charitable giving, I didn't know what really moved me. And that mm-hmm. was the difficulty I had was point number four here. I'm like, I, I don't really know what moves me. I had to actually get my feet wet first and just get involved with something. Once I got involved and I saw what was going on, you know, and I got educated about the problems, then life was good. So I don't know. How, did, how do you decide which charities to give to? This is kind of a point that we've skirted around the edges, too, uh, of talking about, but I'll call it out here, is there's also not idea that you can only give to one group or one time either. 
So I, my wife and I give in a couple of different ways. So we have some giving where like it's to our church. That's just part of a religious background. That's something that we do as a, a faith statement. And that's just a set percentage. We sit down, we calculate it, you know, once a month, once a quarter, whatever we're doing, we write a check. But we also have giving that we give to charities that move us outside of that, where we're giving uh, on top of just our, our regular tithe. And I think you're absolutely right. I think the only way to do that is look for personal connection. Sometimes that comes to you naturally. Like, for instance, if you have a particular illness that runs in your family or a personal you know, family situation, friend situation, like you know, OG was talking about with the, the kids at school giving to the hospital. That kind of connection comes in. But otherwise, a lot of times what it is is go try some things out. Go run some experiments. Go work for some organizations. Go put in some time and some some effort behind it. But I do encourage people to really do that research because, you know, if you go to like Charity Watch and some of these other organizations, you will find out that there are some charities out there, some with really big names, that if you give a dollar, like 60 cents of it is going to some sort of overhead or 70 cents or 80 cents or even 90 cents. Well, maybe there's another place that you can give your money where it actually has more bang for the buck. You know, if if 90 cents are going to the person that needs it and 10 cents are going for overhead, that's a little a little, a little different. different yeah. So, it's not just do research on what moves you, it's also then take that extra step and do some research on what's an effective use of that money as well in terms of actually going to the people that need it. Well, one thing I found too, OG, was it doesn't have to be money. I mean, for us, giving time oh, yeah. in the community was great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, giving involves a lot of different things, right? If you don't have the ability to give a dollar, you can maybe volunteer. I know that one of the things that you used to work on when you were in Texas was the, you know, running thing, trails. the trails. I'm sure you guys donated cash to help that also, but the vast majority of your donation on that was the fact that you helped organize it and you help uh, manage the process. And sometimes we can use our talents that we have in a different capacity. You know, if you're really good at personal finance, for example, maybe you're, maybe you're best served to be on the board of a charitable organization where you can help direct the investment policy, or you can help uh, make sure the books are balanced or you're a CPA, you can do the tax returns annually for free or something. And that really helps out as well. So there's a lot of different ways to, to give that involves beyond that it goes beyond just simply writing a check. Uh, biggest takeaways from this piece, uh, Paula, what's your big takeaway today? I'd say the big takeaway is to ladder your giving. So start with some target percentage, even if that's just 1% or 2% of your income, and then grow it from there, grow it by an additional 1% a year or 2% a year until you've, you've reached four or five or six or seven or whatever percent you want as your ideal top. Oh, gee. You know, I really like the percentage thing too, because we were talking about this in our household and we could all put ourselves in a different place when we made different money than you do in the present year, right? You look at your last year, a lot of times you get that reflection. And I remember thinking like, okay, if I ever made $100,000, then I can totally donate a whole bunch of money. You know, once I make that money, then I'm good. You know, when you're making 30, you think, oh, I can't give anything. But once I make this, I can, I can finally do it. And then, you know, you get to 100 and you go, yeah, 100's great. But as soon as I make 200, then I'll totally have tons of money. And if you can't do 1% of 200 or 20, you're not going to do 1% of 2 million. You're not going to do, you know, whatever that percentage is. So, so I think that's really important. I, 
uh, for us in our household, I am really, really, really big into the power of compounding. So I recognize that there's a lot of need for things today, right? Uh, whatever is important to you. Again, if you ask them, they'll say, hey, we need the money today. Uh, we needed it yesterday, actually. So if you could send cash, we'll take that. But I also know that if we can kind of delay the gratification, so to speak, and use that something like a donor advised fund or, or a charitable trust where you're able to say, I'm going to leverage this gift into something that's exponentially higher, I think that gives you a, a really big bang for your buck down the line. And Scott is our guest. You've got the last word, man. Yeah, for me, it was actually the last point, number seven, that he talked about, which was, you know, looking for opportunities for random acts of kindness. Because my wife and I actually, we have a line in our budget that's just called random giving. For us, we see a police officer out having, you know, lunch, and we'll sneak over to the waitress and buy their lunch. Um, You know, we have a waitress that's having a bad day. We leave an extra big tip. You know, so like we've left as much as $500 for a tip before. And we try to do it in a way that's semi-anonymous or at least doesn't, you know, it's not about us being able to jump up and down and go, hey, look at us. It's more about, hey, this is a need and, and we found an opportunity to do it. So we like doing those sorts of things on top of our regular giving. And I think sometimes we forget the power of, you know, buying a Starbucks coffee for the person who's in line behind you and how much fun that is for the rest of your day. Even if you don't know the bozo, you know, even if they were honking their horn at you five minutes before, it doesn't matter. Still do it. Yeah. It's kind of fun. On today's Friday FinTech segment, we're going to talk about investing Super excited that we get to talk to Saul Cohen about the company Round. And it's funny because those people that have listened to the show for a while know that I think the death of active investing is premature. I think the people that say that there is no hope for active investments uh, probably haven't done enough research in that area. And a guy who sits right on top of active management research is... Saul Cohen. He's one of the founders of a company called Round. Round helps people invest in active management strategies that the average person might not be able to get their hands on. They also help people allocate their portfolio correctly so it's not a big mess. So I wanted to learn more about it. And I thought, you know what? As long as I want to know more about it, let's invite Saul down to the basement to hear more about it. Here is coming down to the basement. Saul Cohen from Round. And coming down the stairs to the basement. Look at this guy, fresh off the plane from LA. It's our good friend, Saul Cohen. How are you, man? I'm great, and you? Thanks for having me. Well, I'm, I'm happy you're here because I'm happy to talk about what you guys do because it's so different than what, you know, everybody talks about passive investing these days. Tell me... Why did you decide to start a company going the exact opposite way of the indexers? The company has a pretty interesting origin. I think top level to kind of answer your question before I dive into the business. One, individuals have way too much exposure to just the stock market and passive index funds. And, you know, when you look at ultra high net worth individuals and you look at institutional investors, They've got a, a higher allocation to fixed income and alternative asset classes, not just stocks. And when you look at active versus passive investing, 
um, and you focus on, for example, fixed income, 60% of fixed income, active fund managers outperform passive. Whereas when you're talking about just stocks and equities, 80% of active equity managers underperform passive. So if you look at ultra high net worth and institutional portfolios, naturally they would be gravitating towards active management. Whereas I think for the masses and for the individual, they don't really have access or a properly constructed portfolio with exposure to to these types of things. What are some of the asset classes you're talking about when you're talking about the things that ultra high net worth people have access to that maybe we don't? For example, when you're looking at a a large portfolio, people are focused on something called risk-adjusted returns uh, primarily. So what that means is you're looking to achieve the highest amount of performance while mitigating as much risk as possible. Because obviously, think about it this way. If you have a billion dollars, you're not going to bet the farm and try to lose a billion dollars, right? And that, in my view, I think you should treat your $10,000 like it's a billion dollars, right? So you should, as an individual, be focused on risk-adjusted returns. When you look at asset classes like real estate or you look at asset classes like distressed investing or private debt or you look at something like which is called structured credit. So that could be the cash flow stream of an aircraft. Those types of asset classes can provide great risk adjusted returns and have for many institutional investors in the past. And, you know, when you're thinking about investing, it's good to not just buy 500 stocks in the S&P 500. There's a lot different investments out there, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the universe of where to invest is massive. It seems as though these days it's common knowledge to just buy the S&P 500, right? Well, what about the rest of your portfolio, right? Like if the stock market crashes, then what happens? We have a particular concern with passive index investing, and that is because we believe a bubble is forming in passive investing. And the reason we believe a bubble is forming is because these funds have grown so large. And if you look at the ownership of roughly 90% of the companies in the S&P 500, their largest shareholders are passive ETF providers. And if we enter a downturn and there's a scenario where people are pulling their money out of passive ETFs, who are these ETF providers going to sell a big chunk of these companies too, right? That can create a major problem in the markets. And I think everyone talks about this, but diversification is very important, not just diversification of stocks, but a diversification in asset classes and portfolio construction. So that's kind of our view on this. Well, why you guys? That's the problem, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the problem. There's the opportunity for a company like Round. Saul, tell me about the origin then of Round and of the company. How did how did you guys get started? The company was started on two very different sides. My co-founder, Ron, majored in finance. And he tells people because he majored in finance in college, he knows nothing about investing. <laughs> <laughs> and he ended up becoming a software engineer. Of course. Um, Ron's a brilliant engineer. And we've been friends for a number of years. And he came to me and he said, Saul, where do you invest your money? From my perspective, these robo-advisors invest in the same generic passive ETFs. And I could technically go replicate that on my own in a brokerage account. Uh, and I don't want to trust my nest egg to the volatile swings of the markets. So where do professionals go to invest their money, which is what you do? And I said to him, I don't really have time to manage my own money because I'm too busy 
managing a portfolio. You know, my career was, you know, a little bit different. You know, I started my career in financial services during the financial crisis. And then, you know, I moved over to Guggenheim Partners after working in, you know, investment making and in advisory. I was on a team of portfolio managers at Guggenheim. My team ran over $10 billion at Guggenheim. I had the fortunate pleasure of working for some of the greatest minds in uh, bond investing in the planet. And I got to see firsthand the infrastructure required to make intelligent investment decisions. And I sat in this position where we were known as a very prestigious fund manager. And I think we were getting a lot of attention for being really good at what we did as an organization. And in my opinion, I kind of saw for an individual access to what we did wasn't smooth, right? So for an institutional investor, they could come in, make a diligence, you know, what we did and then allocate resources accordingly. Whereas as an individual, you basically had to go to a middleman who then dealt with the salesperson to then finally get access to high quality investing. And in my mind, the investment industry almost functions like brick and mortar retail in the 1980s, where you have a manufacturer of investment strategies and then a distributor of investment strategies. And in what you know, I thought to myself is, if you can automate portfolio construction and distribution of institutional funds, you can then enable everyday investors to get access to the most sophisticated investment managers on the planet, which serves a huge benefit, obviously, to society. And luckily for me, my co-founder, Ron, was a software engineer. So him and I set out a number of years ago to build as much automation as possible to cut out the middleman so that people could invest with the best active fund managers on the planet. And that's really the origin of the business. So let's dive into exactly how it works then, Saul. So somebody yep. goes to investround.com. Is there also an app? Yeah, so we have a mobile app that you can create an account on. Uh, and then you can go through our website to also create an account. So basically what happens is you tell us about yourself based off of the information you tell us. That goes into our proprietary portfolio construction software. And then you are basically allocated to investment methodologies, which enables our team at Round to scale decision making. So our team goes out, searches for the best fund managers, selects them, and will allocate our customers' portfolios to what we deem as the best in alternative fixed income, the best in stock picking, the best in real estate, and so on. What our technology allows us to do is scale up that decision-making so that your portfolio is efficiently run and managed. You know, one difference that I've, I've seen you point out before in other places is at some point, the market's going to go down, right? At some mm. point, the financial markets are going to begin to deteriorate to some degree. And you talk about the fact that you guys are able to pay attention. Obviously, nothing's guaranteed, Saul. But what does that, mm. what does that mean? What does that look like? Do you just change the asset allocation mm. during a change in the market? Tell me about your asset allocation technique a little bit. When we think about investing, the financial markets are treacherous, right? It requires a great deal of infrastructure to make an intelligent decision on a specific asset, right? Or a specific security. In our opinion, 
the most efficient way to do that is rely on these big fund managers that have the infrastructure to make intelligent decisions, right? They have the research departments, the CIOs, the traders, the analysts, the PMs that have been doing this for a long period of time um, and have a handle on particular market that they invest in. I don't personally believe people should go out and pick their own stocks and bonds on their own because they don't have the infrastructure to make intelligent decisions. At Round, what we do is we will allocate our customers to what we deem as the best managers at whatever it is that they do. And then those managers take money into the fund and they have the infrastructure to make the most intelligent decisions in the particular markets that they focus on. So we, one, will diligence a manager and go through the selection process internally. And if a manager is not doing well or you know we're not happy with their infrastructure anymore, we have the ability to allocate our customers away from that manager. And at the same time, managers have the infrastructure and the knowledge that they can de-risk portfolios, they can increase asset class exposure to certain areas, which allows us to abstract away as much potential poor decision-making as possible because they have the infrastructure to make intelligent decisions for our customers. So as the markets evolve and as things change, these big institutional investors should be trying to de-risk portfolios if they see that a market's not looking very good. And theoretically, they should be able to go risk on if they see opportunities. Versus a passive index that can't do anything. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about how you guys make money. Tell me about that. Sure. So we charge half a percent a year. We also instituted something that was pretty interesting that, you know, at the end of the month, if your performance is, is negative, we'll waive the fee. Tell um, me, tell know. me a second, because this is not my first time hearing about this, Saul. And yeah. when I first heard about this, I wondered something. You're in the room deciding to make that decision where the portfolio mm. goes down, you waive the fee. Tell right. me about how that decision came about. Cause, cause I just think that's fascinating. I've never heard it before. Everybody, when I was a financial planner a decade ago for 16 years, it was the question everybody asked. And my answer always was nobody does that. Right. And you guys do that. So tell me about that decision. So the way that we think about this fee structure is kind of a, a throwback to uh, the financial crisis when a lot of people were losing money. We thought to ourselves, if our customers' portfolios are not performing well at the end of the month, we should give them some type of a sweetener and saying, hey, we're not going to make money at the end of that month. The other thing that I'd say about it is we believe in what we do here. We have a lot of faith in the managers that are running our customers' portfolios, and we believe they're the best at what they do. So we're willing to put our bottom line on the line for our customers because we believe in what we do so much so. In fact, all of the money that I have left after investing most of it into starting <laughs> my company is invested in my round account. So we you know, have a ton of faith in our portfolios for our customers. And that's why we're willing to do something like that. The site is investround.com or uh, you can download the app. Don't worry if you're walking the dog or you're on your commute, we got you covered. We'll have the links to both of those on our website, on our show notes page at stackybedjamins.com. Saul, happy new year, man. And thanks for talking a little bit about round with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
Hey there, stackers. Welcome back to your favorite part of the show. My incredible, delicious, delectable, some would even say outstanding, but really, uh, why lay on the platitudes at this point? We all know how incredible it is. It's my trivia. So uh, in the interest of plugging leaks, I've grabbed a candle to measure airflow and searched the basement for all of the places cold air might be sneaking in. One area I'm not worried about is the card table where these guys record. Tons of hot air coming through those mics. Oh, look, right there by that little basement window. Wow, almost blew my candle out. I'll take care of this and light a candle under this year's trivia contest. I'm so excited. In the spirit of saving energy, here's a question. How many stackers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Oh, that's just such an old classic. Everyone knows that answer. It's both listeners. Nah, let's shoot for something a little more taxing on the old energy unit in your head. Since we're saving energy today and the units for energy is kilowatts, how about this one? Football player extraordinaire J.J. Watt was drafted in 2011. What pick overall was he in the draft? I'll be back with the answer and some plastic for the windows in just a moment. Probably can get some plastic off Joe's mom's couch, huh? Didn't see that curveball coming, did we, huh? Now, Paula and Len tied for the win last year, and we're introducing something different even crazier to the trivia contest this year. And that's this. We are not, we are not going to continue to allow Chelsea Brennan's name to be used as a verb. We are, but we can still, you know, still do play it. strategically. <laughs> you still can. However, the mm-hmm. win is only going to go to the closest. Oh, so it's not closest without going over. It's closest. So you may Chelsea Brennan somebody, I suppose, to maybe knock them out strategically if you think it's a little bit higher. But we're going to see how this plays. So we're going to see if anybody actually knows anything here, maybe. But of course, looking back at our trivia questions, I think it's incredibly, it's incredibly difficult to know, uh, especially like popcorn in the Empire State Building or average number of what yards to the moon um things like that but today might be a little easier if you're a fan of football so the prize you remember last year was paula because you won you get to go first in the middle or last you get to choose you and len get to choose now scott you're playing on behalf of len penzo today Uh, I, i have to apologize to len already uh, yeah. Well, have you heard the show? You're not going to have to apologize for anything. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, well, football is the one where they throw the ball through the little round hoop on a big pole, right? Oh, boy. That's almost as good as Paula's nodding her head, yes. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> glad, we're, glad we're right. <laughs> I thought football was the one with the skates and the ice. Yes. And the puck. Uh, yes. It, it is? Uh Okay. Yeah. Now, now that makes sense. Okay. I can't figure out why OG is, uh, is, is grinning a bunch. Why does he keep like putting his hands together like that? (laughs) What what does that mean? But Paula, so do you want to guess first in the middle or last? I would like to guess last, please. All right. Not the advantage it used to be, but still possibly an advantage. We'll see how this plays out. Scott, you want to go in the middle or first? 
Uh, I'll go first. What the heck? Okay, which means OG's going in the middle. So, Scott, J.J. Watt, 2011 draft. What number was he picked? Okay, so this is a number. I'm, I've got that from the answer. I'm supposed to give a numerical answer. It, yes. Um, so this is random number generator time 11. 11. Picking a number. <laughs> OG, you are second. I kind of wonder, was he was he a big deal coming out of college? I don't even remember where he went to college. Did he go to college? He just come straight out of high school. So this is like a basketball thing where you can go straight out of high school and play. No, I'm kidding. Obviously, he went to college. Sure. He's, he's been um, a heck of a player since hitting the NFL. Well, heck of an injury player. I mean, he gets That's injured all the time. He does. You know. But talk about a guy who does a lot of um, charitable work, too. Oh, dude. That guy's crazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he what he raised fifty million dollars in like two weeks for uh for the Hurricane Harvey it's, stuff. It's incredible all the work I mean, that he's now I need to look this guy up. The Hurricane Harvey was right down the road from yeah, where I live. Right down the street from you. Yeah, yeah no, he he's he's a legit um um philanthropist good guy. Yes. Yeah, good guy. Good he he's good people. He's he, good people. He is. So um defensive players, especially like defensive ends, usually go really high if they're good next to quarterbacks and I'm trying to figure out who you said 2011, right? So yes, gosh, that was a, almost a 10 years ago. Now it's hard to pick like who might've been in that draft class with him, but I'm going to say he was better than 11th. I'm going to say he was in the top five. So I'll say number four, number four for OG. Well, Paula, that sets the table for you. Not sure. Uh, not sure how big an NFL fan you are. You guys are getting the Raiders there though. So I know yeah. that tickets. I heard you get in a suite. Absolutely. Do you afford There's anything? Nothing I'd rather suite. spend my money on. She's What's get, a business deduction. So she's getting a sweet watch of a game once a year on TV. <laughs> <laughs> I, the only football uh, game that I watch is a Super Bowl, And even then I can't say that I watch the game. I watch the commercials. That's probably my favorite part too, mm-hmm. but quit stalling Paula. Okay. Well, I have absolutely no idea how to take this guess. And the first number that popped into my head was five. So I'm just going to say that. You're going to put yourself right between Scott and OG. I uh, can't believe it's just closest number now. I know that is. That, that totally changes the strategy. Changes it completely everything. messes everything up. <laughs> changes the game. Well, millions of dollars at stake. This one, I'm sure, just like J.J. Watt's contract. So... We'll be back with the answer here in just a minute. Hey, Stackers. Today, we have a big announcement in the Stacky Benjamins family. We are now joining forces with a show that we absolutely love called the What's Up Next podcast. Our friend Doc G runs that show. He and I have been working together behind the scenes for a while, and starting now, we're pleased that he's going to be a part of the Stacking Benjamins family of shows. And what's the family of shows, you ask? Well, Stacking Benjamins is a variety show. And if there's one area that you like, we want to have a show in that very specific area. So if you'd like Doug's Bad Dad Jokes as an example, Doug's Super Hilarious Joke of the Week podcast would be a great spot for you. Tune into that. If you like the headlines, of course, that means our show Money with Friends is probably a great spot for you. If you're someone who likes interviews with amazing guests, Bobby Rebell's Financial Grown-Up Show, and now when it comes to episodes like today, our roundtable, 
the What's Up Next podcast. So if you're enjoying this roundtable discussion, Doc G does a phenomenal job of conducting roundtables every single episode of What's Up Next. He dives into all areas associated with financial independence and great financial habits in general and talks to lots of people from a wide spectrum who practice great financial habits. So tune into that where you're listening to our show, What's Up Next podcast. We're so happy to be affiliated with the show that was voted last year as the Plutus Award winner for Best New Podcast. All right, Scott, you kicked it off by saying 11. That was just a random throw it out there, throw a dart. Yeah, I, I picked the number literally just because you said 2011. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, why not 11? <laughs> and Paula, sounds like you were kind of equally there, but you get the field goal, right? Kicked it through the uprights between the other two guys. Uh, sure. Yeah. She's, of course. Like, yeah. I totally get that metaphor. Field goal, goal unit, something. <laughs> Baseball cage. Oh, gee, with all this rhetoric from Scott and Paula, you got to feel pretty damn confident. I don't have any idea. Well, let's uh, let's find out from Doug. Welcome back. And man, oh man, am I going to go to town wrapping windows in this plastic film to keep the cold air outside and the hot air in. Heck, with all this hot air, we could sell power to the neighbors. But let's talk about kilowatts or J.J. Watt in this case. What draft pick was he in 2011? Well, J.J. Watt, personal friend of mine who makes $13 million in his current contract might have a different story than you'd thought. If you were thinking this was some Tom Brady tale, you might have said he was drafted like 199th overall or something, but that wasn't the case for Mr. Watt. He was chosen as the 11th pick overall. Get it right? Come celebrate by helping me hang plastic here in the basement. Hey, grab the saran wrap, will you, OG? <laughs> you said 2011, so why not? Right that is a lucky guess. Lynn owes me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, man. <laughs> I, I knew from Doug what the answer to this was going to be. And when he's like, I don't know, I'm going to throw out a random number, 11. When, holy, you had to keep a straight face. I, I was nice. having such now a hard I understand why you fell out of your chair. I was trying to, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure what happened there. Like, how great is that for Len, Paul? He's not even here. And he still scores points. That's L incredible. Lynn, remember, I get a percentage of the winnings. Yes. I get a percentage of the winnings, the millions, the and if millions. It's anything like the 2019 winnings, boy, you're getting a ton there. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. I'm going to retire on that. <laughs> hey, let's take out the magnifying glass before Scott gloats too much and help somebody do better with their money. Today's hotline call comes to us courtesy of magnifymoney.com. Because when you go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money, you know what you find, Scott Mater? What do you find? You find that those financial products you use from your brick and mortar bank every day, they're nowhere near the best in class. Over 92% of the products available online, all ranked at Magnify Money. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money for more. And today, to kick off the new year, because we didn't do one of these last week on the eight ball episode, let's help Molly magnify her money. Say hi, Molly. Hi guys, long time listener, second time caller. My shirt is so soft that I want to get a bigger one to fit me in my growing belly. It's not that I'm spending too much time at the Sizzler with Doug, but I'm having a baby stacker in the spring. 
as much as I want to get Joe and OG's thoughts on a vaginal birth versus cesarean, I'll throw a softball and ask about childhood savings. We already have 529 accounts for our nieces and nephews because they just get so many gifts at the holidays. So I've gotten experience plans in two states. State one seems to have a general 529 index fund through Vanguard, and the account activity is all just the contributions we put in. State two is a general total stock market index fund, and the account activity shows fees plus dividends. One quarterly dividend so far has been less than a year of fees combined. So does one seem better to you, or is this too much in the weeds to matter? Secondly, if one of our nephews is half Korean and the parents intend to go back to Korea, so the 529 isn't very useful, his money is currently sitting in a savings account, and I feel bad that his cousins are doing better than he is. Uh, The online savings bond system seemed way too complicated and initially pushed me to 529s back in the day. So any ideas for other savings or investment options for him? I won't hold out hope to learn anything, but at least you can tell Gertrude that the future stacker and I combined are size large. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for the for the question, Molly. And uh, I, I prefer her first question. That sounds more fun. Oh yeah, we, no, that's uh, that's <laughs> that's when OG no, when OG launches his new podcast, he can cover that stuff. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, so we've got a few questions in there, but let's start off. With the kid going to moving to Korea where the 529 plan doesn't doesn't really work. Uh, Paula, what do you think about that? That throws a a, a wrench in the game, right? Like if the kid's moving to Korea, the 529 plan is not going to be applicable for that kid. But given that they want that kid to still get some money, I'd say just good old not tax advantaged money for that kid. Good old fashioned cash. But is an investment choice cash? Because it's in the savings account now. Yeah. So leave it in, leave it in the savings I mean, they account? Can, they can invest it in a taxable brokerage account, but uh, I just I don't see a tax-advantaged way of setting up an account for that kid. Yeah. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I kind of had the same thought. I mean, at least as far as I'm aware, now you can, you know, again, this is where get a good financial advisor, talk to OG or somebody like that, that knows more. Maybe there's a trick here that I'm not aware of, but it's probably going to end up being some sort of a brokerage account or custodial account of some sort where, you know, you may end up with some tax implications, but that's probably going to be better than your quote brick and mortar savings account uh, in terms of what it, what it still earns. They're still going to come out ahead, even if you, you have to pay some taxes at the end of it. So, and again, that's relatively simple and kind of you can set it up and fire and forget it. You can automate it and make it relatively easy to just be hands off and go forward. Oh, gee, is there is there a trick? Is there a tax advantage way that Paul and Scott don't know about? Not that I'm thinking of. I mean, I think um, it just is what it is, right? I mean, that's the other end of that stick about moving back. So you can choose two ways to do this. One is to do the regular custodial account and that money becomes the kids at 18. The downside with that is if you do that and they live in Korea at the time, now you've got all sorts of other issues to deal with. Like you have a U.S. citizen, I assume, who's living overseas with now money in the U.S., who's 18, so therefore might be working and now is earning dividends and capital gains on an investment portfolio. I mean, it gets it's, this gets messy in a hurry. I would just prefer you to just set up a regular brokerage account, leave the beneficiary as the nephew. So if anything happens, so keep it, you in, know, keep it in Molly's name, 
keep it in Molly's name, leave the beneficiary. And then the other benefit of that is, is that you do have the flexibility if, you know, what happens if the kid doesn't ever need the money? It's yours. What if the kid decides to move to Korea, but then goes back to school in California for whatever reason, you can use it, you know? So there's a lot of different, there's more flexibility there. Sure. There's not going to be any tax benefits, but frankly, unless you're stuffing the thing with $15,000 a year anyway, we're not talking about some huge amount of savings that you're, that you're foregoing from it not being in a 529. But I wouldn't have it be in a savings account. I would, you know, just pick a mutual fund and be done with it. That's what I was going to ask next, guys. Do you like a mutual fund, exchange-traded fund, or is this a time for Junior to learn about individual stocks? You can guess what I'm going to say. No, I'm I can't. A fan of- I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> I am Should a I very, guess? Should very I big guess? fan of uh, ETFs and index funds. And I think that teaching Junior about broad market investing is a more worthwhile lesson than teaching Junior about individual stock picking. I don't know. Last week we talked about Tesla, Paula. You've made a lot of money on Tesla. <laughs> you just don't want to teach kids the wrong lessons with regard to investing. I, I guess I'll, I will slightly contradict myself in saying that if you want to get a kid excited about the prospect of investing, I do see the value in introducing the concept to them by saying you could be an owner of Disney or Nike or whatever your the kid's favorite brands are. So introducing the concept by saying, you know, you could own part of this company. Sure, there's maybe some value there, but I would very quickly transition it to index fund, to, to lessons about index fund investing. OG or Scott? I'd love to go real controversial and say, oh, no, put it on. But I agree with Paula. Oh, no, that's horrible. I would, I would keep it simple. Now, if you did want to carve off a small percentage of it and let the kid, quote, have some play money that they can figure out, oh, I love Nike or I love whatever, and they buy an individual stock or two with some small amount of it, okay, fine. You know, that, that again, kind of to get them excited or get them interested or whatever. But just like I wouldn't do that with my own money, I wouldn't put it all into an individual stock. I have a really hard time suggesting that you do that for, for the kiddo too. I mean, if you, if you bet right, yeah, you could win, but there's just so many more ways you could bet wrong. There's absolutely no way that a kid is going to be interested in this and there's no lesson to be learned. I don't think in any way, shape or form other than Aunt Molly has a whole bunch of money for me someday. So the other thing that I would do is I would go a little controversial on this. If we're talking about lessons learned and stuff, I wouldn't teach them crap. That's not necessarily your job as the benevolent aunt. I would think about it more like this money is here. I know about it. I'm the only one who knows about it. And when I catch wind of the fact that my nephew or niece is going to college, I might be able to step up to the plate and say, hey, by the way, 20 years ago, what about, we set aside a few bucks. Yeah, but wait a minute. Do you think that the other nieces and nephews with 529 plans, that they know about theirs? I hope not. Like if Junior doesn't know about his, the kid who's moving to Korea doesn't know about his, and no, everybody about, else yeah, knows I'm, I'm about just, I'm theirs. across the board. No, 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 I'm saying across the board, you shouldn't tell anybody. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you've made the choice that you're going to, that's the big you know, Christmas present is like, great, we put another hundred dollars in your 529. Like you're already the favorite aunt. <laughs> Guess what I got you? Well, not another necessarily. Yeah. Yes. Like, oh, cool. So no toys. Awesome. Is that like getting socks and underwear? 
Is that what you're saying? It's worse. Yeah. yeah. If you're a kid. Yeah. No, Socks and underwear. I can't even wear. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yep. I wouldn't tell them anything because then it gives you more flexibility. What if, you know, and this is more broadly, I think, you know, you've got all these 529 plans. What if two of the kids don't go to school? Like now are you obligated to give them the money and pay the tax bill? Or can you just quietly change the beneficiary to somebody else? And still, you're still in control of it, I understand. But, you yeah, but know. She's, but if she's giving this as a gift at the holidays, then Aunt Molly looks like she's a tightwad. And the kids find out later yeah. that she wasn't. Yeah. Welcome to the real world. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a family dynamic question. That's not a money question. Uh, in, in terms yeah. of, you know, it, it's a because it depends on what their family dynamics are. I, I mean, I don't know enough about what they're doing in terms of are they sitting down at Christmas and going, hey, here's the money for your 529. Or is this kind of more, you know, the ants socking some money aside and is also buying them underwear, you know, sure. and socks, you know, the cool stuff. Because I know we've done that again in our family where we've got some money that we're saving for various nieces and nephews. And you're correct. I mean, we're doing exactly what you said. They don't know about it. We're, yeah. we're controlling yeah, it right now. I think it kind of sends the wrong message, I think. But gives you more I also know families where they do that, where they talk mm-hmm. to about it. So it's kind of six of one and half a dozen another to me. Thanks for the question, Molly. You got a question for us? Head to stuckybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And uh, the team will be happy to basically... Argue. Argue. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to do it for today. Uh, Let's let the guest of honor go last. So, OG, what do you got uh, coming up this uh, second full weekend of the new year, of the new decade? Yeah, it's fantastic. I uh, just got back from a few days of uh, work travel, so that's fun. And uh, believe it or not, after school activity just ended, starts again. So Immediately. um, immediately it's a never ending after school activity nowadays for me which is uh, which is good so a little bit of that and then the kids have another day off of school in a couple of days so it's I love the whole after school activity thing. I do this non-specific thing that I'm not going to tell you about. Can't tell you about it, but, but I'm doing it all the time. You'll know it if you see me. Yes, absolutely. He'll be the dude at the side of the road with the sign. I'll be doing the thing with the stuff this weekend. In the place. Mm-hmm. Paula, how about that incredible Afford Anything podcast? How are you kicking off the new decade? On the Afford Anything podcast, we are kicking off the decade with a one tweak a week challenge. So this is a challenge to make one tweak or change to your financial life per week for the first 26 weeks, the first six months of the new year. So on the Afford Anything podcast, we have an episode that's dedicated to what these tweaks are, plus an extra big batch of bonus tweaks that were generated from our community. So we actually have somewhere around 40 or 50 tweaks that we're sharing. It's so much better than us, OG. We went, by the way, with 52 twerks. <laughs> so maybe missed. Good thing it's you not did. a video podcast. Well, you know, your YouTube channel is going to go bonkers. <laughs> it's going to be great. That's where your money's Is Doug one of them? Old white guys twerking. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, not, <laughs> yes. I know a lot of people just threw up in their mouth a little bit there. Uh, Scott, thanks a ton for hanging out with us, man. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Well, um, I, I, can we do this again? <laughs> absolutely. What are you doing tomorrow? What's happening at the uh, Inspired Stewardship Podcast? Tell us what's coming up. 
so we've got a couple of things coming up right now. I just finished up a series on kind of doing your annual plan and annual review and looking at all of that. Now we're going to be diving back into unpacking, looking at some new tips for time. I, I just launched a course around productivity. And so that kind of time piece is going to be something that we're unpacking over the next week because I found that to be a real multiplier for people, whether it comes to their finances or other things, how we handle our time seems to really affect what we do in the life. So that's what I'll be unpacking starting next week. That's awesome. And if you're walking the dog or on your commute, we've got you covered. We'll have links to all the stuff we talked about here, not just the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, but to Ford Anything and Andy's awesome piece at stackybenjamins.com. All right, that's going to do it. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Yep, you got it, Joe. I'll tell everybody. Hey, first, let's talk about ways to help out our community this year. Not only will they benefit, but as our team so eloquently today said, you'll also receive. Second, take some advice from Saul Cohen from Round. Maybe it's time to clean up your investment mix and stay on top of it. But the big lesson? Create your escape plan before putting plastic over all the doors. Maybe should have thought about that first. But boy, is it getting warm down here. That's a good trade-off. Now we just have to convince Joe's mom to throw some cookies down the laundry chute and we'll be A-OK for a few minutes, hopefully. Big thanks to Scott Materer for stopping by and joining in the fun. You'll find his Inspired Stewardship podcast wherever you're listening to us right now. Thanks also to Saul Cohen from Round for stopping by. You'll find more at investround.com. Holopant appears courtesy of AffordAnything.com and the Afford Anything podcast. Finally, thank you to Andy Hill from Marriage, Kids, and Money for both his posts we use on today's show and for reading it for us. Andy, while there's no money in podcasting, it's great to have you working it with us. <laughs> this show is created by Joe Saul Seahigh, produced by Karen Rapine, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm pretty much the guy in charge of everything around here. Trust me, this well-oiled machine didn't get like this all by itself. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor.
you know, Doug talking about conserving electricity. I remember I really wanted an HO train set when I was a little kid. I think Len Penzo was my role model and I was a uh, super geek like he is to do a train set, but I got just a couple pieces at a time. So, and what's funny is right in the basement over here is a box with all the HO train stuff that I have. And I've never completely had the train set, but it's probably a collector's item. Man. And I'm not sure how interested I am in him anymore, but back when I was 12, my parents gave me this awesome station, the Sunnyvale station, and it came with a working light in the station, but I didn't have the thing to run, the transformer that runs the train, and you plugged all your electronics into that transformer that ran the train, but I didn't know that. I wanted to see how this damn thing worked. I had these two wires, and so I just stuck them, I stuck them into the wall socket. You won't forget that very quickly. So what happened when you stuck the wires into the wall socket? There was this huge bang, this huge noise. The entire wall socket turned black. The The plastic thing around it broke in half, like broke right mm-hmm. across the middle of it. And I just remember kind of being shot back into the room. I, just, I mean, that was what I felt, but I was... I was young, so it probably wasn't that dramatic. It probably was just, I stuck it in. There was a big bang. Um, th- that, that light bulb was out of commission too, by the way. May not, may not have worked. But I was wondering. Did, did, did the station melt? The station didn't melt. No. The light bulb was gone. But the station, the, the wires were, were all messed up too. We're all, yeah. But um yeah, don't do that, kids. But I was wondering if you guys had similar experiences or if I'm the only dumbass who would do something like that. Well, I can share a fun one. When I was uh, uh, younger, uh, quite a bit younger, we had a, a big tree fort in the backyard, you know, three stories that had a working retractable staircase. I mean, we were like the cool kids. You're kidding me. Uh, no, 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 I'm not. It was ropes and pulleys. I mean, it wasn't like electronic, but, you know, we would pull up the staircase and the whole bit and it went up three stories. Well, the top story had a bunch of ivy and like vines on it. So I climbed out on the the roof and began to pull these vines out of the tree. Oh, no. Not realizing that one of the things that the vines was wrapped around was a high power voltage line at the top of the towers. And I grabbed it. Oh, my God. Now I grabbed it through vines you know, which is probably what saved my life. And you were talking about being blown backwards. I was blown off the top of this, like we called it three stories. It was really probably like 15 feet off the ground, but still it was a good height and blown off of that and onto the ground and had uh, burns on my hand oh and my burns God. on my foot uh, where my foot was touching the thing. It burned a hole in the bottom of my shoe. But since I did it with one arm, it didn't go through my heart. So it didn't stop my heart. But I, uh, yeah, so I was electrocuted by a high power voltage line when I was a, about nine years old or 10 years old. Uh, so that, that's my electricity story. How's that? I think <laughs> Do it's, I, win? I think it's funny. We have these podcasters here and we're all talking about how we got electrocuted. And then we started a podcast later. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like something happened to our brain, which must mean Paula, something happened to you too. I can't say that I've ever been electrocuted. No. <laughs> Although like for, <laughs> for still Christmas. Time. There's still time. <laughs> 
for Christmas this past year, just a couple weeks ago, I, I took part in a white elephant gift exchange. And the random present that I dug out of the pile was, you know, one of those Himalayan pink rock salt lamps, which is like, it's literally just a chunk of rock salt with a light bulb inside. They're trendy now. There was a long explanation about how the rock salt allegedly pulls negative ions out of the air, something like that. I don't totally understand it, but it's a big trend thing now. And so I received one of those for Christmas. I plug it in. It's nice. It's pretty. It like, you know, because the light bulb is inside this big chunk of pink rock salt, it kind of lights up with this nice pink glow. So it's it's certainly very pretty and a nice decoration. But then I realized that I can lick the lamp because it's made out of salt. <laughs> and so I do that now. Now I, I sit there on my laptop and every now and again, I'll look over and just lick the lamp. Paula got a salt lick for herself. <laughs> Basically, this is it's gonna say used it for deer hunting. <laughs> they also use it for raising cattle, so that's not a good yeah. analogy. That's no. not good. No, I, I have learned the habit of licking my lick. light fixtures. <laughs> that answers, yeah, by the way, that answers so many questions about Paula. I know. <laughs> right there. What happens when it gets dusty? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I just received it, so I, I haven't really dealt with that yet. But it, it is delicious. It's um it's the tastiest lamp I own. <laughs> well, you're the last one now, OG. We've got I the can't beat, I can't beat the licking lamp. Uh, story or shut off but, your tree um, fort shot off a roof yeah. <laughs> i know I, I can kind of get close to that one so i have two when i was a kid my grandfather owned a farm and the farm had electric fences for all the cattle not that there's a lot but the ones that were there and i'm standing out by the fence and we're always taught not to touch the electric fence right don't touch the fence dummy my grandpa says Hey, um, and he grabs the fence and he's like, you can touch this one. This one's okay. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And I do it. And it, pew, same thing, <laughs> like catapults me backwards. And he's, he just is laughing. And he's like, and that's what happens when you just touch an electric fence. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell, Gramps? You know, like that was like, he's like, I didn't really touch it. He like put his hands around it, you know, oh, really? but he didn't touch it. Yeah. So that was my, that was my one example of grabbing electricity. My other one was when I worked at a restaurant when I was a kid or in high school or whatever, you know, all tables and stuff like that. Well, the lamps for each table like overhung the table, yeah. you know, so they're, they're kind of eye level when you stand there. Pretty low. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so one of the bulbs was out. And so I reach up there to unscrew the bulb and I get the next one. I go to put the next one in and I miss and I just <laughs> shove my oh. hand in the electrical socket. And that hurt like hell. Like, oh. I don't remember the hurting of the electric fence because I was really little, but I remember it happening. I remember the hurting of sticking your hand in a light socket. And like, you're talking about like going through your body and everything. Like the opposite part of my body hurt. Like my arm, the other hand, like the, like it's just like I couldn't, had no strength in the opposite arm. And uh, I actually, I, I ended up going home that day from work because I was like, yeah, I don't feel very good. And yeah, it wasn't very cool. So here's the important question. Did you get workman's comp? <laughs> no, nope, nope, no, no, no. That wasn't a thing at this place. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> your, your workman's comp was, yeah, dude, you get comp, go home. <laughs> yeah, no, not even that. It was like, how about we let you come back tomorrow and um, 
if you're lucky, you'll have a job. uh, If you don't tell anybody. You know how you make that feel better, OG? How so? You go lick your lamp. (laughs) Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.